This episode is sponsored by Marvel Strike Force. If you're looking for a superhero-themed mobile game, look no further. Marvel Strike Force is a mobile squad RPG that allows you to battle with your favorite team of superheroes and supervillains in a fight to save the universe against threats like Doctor Doom and Apocalypse. Your goal is to power up your favorite characters to complete missions, unlock gear and other resources, and beat other players in PvP modes like Alliance War and Real-Time Arena. The game is currently celebrating its 6 year anniversary, and they're letting new users in on the celebration by providing free stuff, courtesy of our unique link in the show notes. The anniversary consists of weekly events and bonuses, and if you complete each event, you can receive special rewards and skins. Make sure to log in each day and each week to take advantage of all of the new characters that are being released specifically for this event. This will be Marvel Strike Force's most generous event to date, so don't miss out. We've received a unique promo code, so new users can follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL. That's M-A-X-P-O-O-L. Thanks to Marvel Strike Force for sponsoring this episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Wednesday, May 3rd, 2023. On today's episode of the show, we're going to be talking about the latest film and TV news. My name is Ben Pearson. I'm an editor at SlashFilm.com, and I'm joined on today's episode by Slash Film editor BJ Colangelo. Hi, hi, hiya. All right, BJ, uh, we did not talk about this at all on the podcast yesterday, but as of Tuesday morning, I think at 12.01 a.m., the writers have gone on strike for the first time in, I think it's 15 years at this point. Mm -hmm. Um, So tell me what's going on there. We we mentioned on the podcast before that this was a possibility. I think a lot of people expected that this was going to happen. And uh, what's, what's the latest in strike world? (laughs) All righty. So the latest in strike world is that members of the WGA, both the West, as in Los Angeles, and the East, as in New York City, are on strike. And many of the writers and their supporters are out picketing in front of a lot of the major studios. Um, I actually live pretty close to Warner Brothers, so I've been able to drive by and see, and it is just packed, um, which is fantastic. But what a lot of people I think don't realize is that these sorts of negotiations between the WGA and the studios, they happen every couple of years. And typically strikes are avoided because contracts get renegotiated, things get figured out, and you know, people move forward. However, this strike has been a long time coming um, because The streaming landscape has changed everything, and the current agreements that exist for the WGA, they don't reflect those changes. Um, Streaming is still viewed as, quote-unquote, like new media um, in the current contracts, which as we know, that's it's not new media anymore. Like, this has almost become... This is how most people consume their media. Is yeah, it's like streaming. the dominant media these days almost. <laughs> right. Um, so they need to have contracts that reflect that. And what's interesting is that the last time we had a writer strike, um, the world was a lot different in the sense that social media wasn't as popular as it is now. Like MySpace existed, Twitter existed, Facebook existed, but it wasn't the way it is now. So now one of the big differences is the WGA has been extremely transparent in providing the things that they asked for. And the things that they asked for are like they seem like no brainers to me. Um, like they they want updated residuals to reflect the streaming landscape. They don't want AI to be able to be used to like take away their jobs. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> when they posted their their proposals and what the you know the studios responded with, in a lot of these cases, the studios were like, "Nope, we're not even gonna negotiate this. We're not gonna counter offer. We're not doing anything." 
So now consumers and uh, the audiences and, you know, people like us, we're able to see these things in real time and realize, oh, wow, there is just some straight up cartoon villainy of of wealth hoarding happening here yeah. because their demands are not unrealistic at all. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, the, the journalist part of my brain, BJ, is trying to think of like, okay, this is the side that the writers want us to uh, want us to to see. This is the the narrative that they're trying to craft. Um, and I wonder sort of how the studio people would think about that. And to be clear, I, I support the writers because these, um, you know, the, the requests that they're making are, as you said, very, very uh, reasonable in to, they, they should be reasonable to any person who is just taking a look at this situation objectively and seeing the changes that have been made in the last 15 years since that, that previous strike and understanding like, you know, th- there've been a lot of changes that have gone on behind the scenes in terms of like one of the things that they're, uh, as far as I understand, one of the things that they're sort of hung up on is the idea of like a mini writer's room, which like TV mm-hmm. staffs used to have, or uh, TV shows used to have big staffs of, of writer's rooms that would last for like the entirety of the show. And, uh, you know, writers would be able to get a job there and that job would like hold them through for the year or at least like six months or something until they found another job. But the idea of like mini rooms, this, this term that has come up in the past several years uh, for streaming shows has basically like slashed their opportunities to get uh, longer term employment and turned it into essentially like a gig economy type of thing. Whereas like being a professional writer used to be a real profession that you could actually live on and that, uh, you know, the, the lack of uh, residuals that you're talking about and like the shift to streaming and these mini rooms and all of these things have sort of contributed to um, this idea of, you know, now it's more of a, a gig kind of thing and people are not able to, uh, you know, live, just like basically live and do this job in a way that they used to. Um, so anyway, that, that's a long winded way of, of saying like, do you think that there's uh, any possible way that this is being distorted at all or or um uh i don't know like you know i I think i I try to look at things as um as objectively as as possible and as as uh sort of cockeyed as possible and it seems fairly straightforward the writers being super transparent with what they're asking for and what the studios are saying but uh, the idea that it's just one side of the story um it doesn't concern me, but it's just a, it's an interesting thing to think about. So have you thought about that at all? Do you, do you know, uh, have you thought about that at all, I guess? So obviously whenever it comes to these sorts of situations as a journalist, you want to kind of be objective and look and see what's happening. But the fact that the WGA has been so transparent as much to be like, here's our documents. Like here's literally what we asked for in black and white. And here's what their response was. Like there, there is no side to really take at that point. It's like, Oh no, the WGA is a hundred percent in the right here. And this is, this is corporate greed is what we're looking at because yeah. it's it's there in in black and white. And the only distorting that I'm really seeing is that I, I do follow a lot of people that are in the WGA, you know, either through professional connections, through working as a, a entertainment journalist or just people that I know because we're friends. Um, and the the thing I keep seeing over and over again is them saying, please, for the love of God, if you are reading up any information about the strike, please go to the source. Look at the 
the documents that are just presented as they're being presented without any sort of journalistic spin that are not being sent through through officially given press releases from studios to outlets because a similar thing happened during the last writer strike where the studios were sending out press releases to all of the the outlets you know people like us and being like well here's what's really going on because again social media really wasn't what it was back then Mm -hmm. so a lot of a lot of outlets were just taking the studio's word and like, oh, well, it was an official press release. It must be true. But now we can see in real time people that are actively involved in the negotiations, the people who are actually in the room with the studios being like, that is not at all what happened. Like, so please like look at this. And it's just, I can't help but like kind of laugh at, at, at the studios a bit on this because it's like, do you not know that we can all see this now? Like we can see this. (laughs) Yeah. It reminds me of like, um, you know, when there's a, like a, uh, like an officer involved shooting or something, right? Like the people used to, I, I feel like uh, journalists used to take the police statement as sort of like the default facts of, of the case. And I think this rise of social media that you're talking about has, um, uh, has enabled people to, to actually understand that these situations are often far more nuanced and and often like completely opposite of what you know mm-hmm. police statements are in certain situations and it reminds me of a little bit of what's going on here whereas like you know like you said these people uh who are in the writers guild are trying to be as open as possible about what they want and the studios are are trying to um you know paint things in in whatever light will benefit them and that and that sort of corporate greed that you underlined uh as much as possible and i'm just um yeah, it's just a, it's a it's a I'm I'm uh, dismayed this is happening because mm-hmm. you know people are not getting paid during this time. That's what the whole that's what a strike is, right? Like people are not mm-hmm. working, um, and there are a lot of like productions that are shutting down because of this. And the directors and the actor uh, SAG AFTRA are like next up in line, and they could uh, strike themselves. Those are different guilds, mm-hmm. and they could contribute to this as well, and and you know try to uh, fight for what they believe that they're they're owed um so this this is like a very big deal and really it boils down to like a self-own by the studios like you're saying like you know, <laughs> it, this really, is... <laughs> it really does and we're already seeing it because uh the number that has been floating around a lot from the wga is that what they are asking for would cost the studios collectively 429 million dollars per year and that would affect all of the people in the WGA, like the thousands upon thousands of people. And like $429 million sounds like a huge number because it is a huge number. But when you think about that being spread across thousands of people, it's really not that much money. And then you think about like $429 million is what like is what like the super mario brothers movie made in like a couple weeks right yeah like, exactly. it's really not that much money in the grand scheme of things of what the studios make in a year or you think about how you know there's like eight people really like eight old white dudes that kind of are at the top of the ladder for all of the studios and the amount of money that they make a year is like in the billions like mm-hmm, it's mm-hmm. they're not asking for a lot of money so when you have it all itemized out like this it becomes undeniable it's like i don't understand how anybody could be on the side of the studios in this because they're just they're objectively in the wrong yeah yeah and i i think like you know what the writers are asking for um like we said it just it seems so reasonable it's not like they're asking for um for things where they would need to spin their their side of the story, quote unquote, because they're, mm-hmm. you know, that, 
that's why I asked that question was just because, um, you know, is there a, a world in which, you know, we're not seeing the full picture here, but I think they're doing as much as they can to try to open up that window and like, just let people in and see what's going on because like labor, uh, the labor, uh, labor movement in, in the United States has like grown some traction in, in the past several years. And um, I think people are just like more aware because of social media, because of whatever, like people are, are more, um, you know, tapped into what's going on. And the idea of corporate greed has been, you know, and, and income inequality has been like such at the forefront of, of conversations for years at this point. So um, yeah, I mean, all, all of this stuff is sort of swirling together and resulting in the strike. And uh, from the reports and sort of um, predictions that I've heard, this could be something that lasts for like a long, long time. I think the previous strike lasted just for 100 days, but this mm -hmm. is something that I think a lot of people are predicting could go into you know, the fall and and maybe even winter of this year, um, because they're so far, the studios and the, and the writers are so far away on the opposite sides of the, of the fence and mm -hmm. these key issues that they're trying to get into right now. So, um, yeah, I appreciate you getting into, into this with me. Did you have any other, <laughs> like, um, sort of, um, I don't know, takeaways from like day one, day two of the strike or, or are we just sort of in full on like wait and see mode here? I think right now we're in wait and see mode because like you said, the, the negotiations are so distanced in terms of what they're asking for and what the studios are willing to give. Um, I will place my bet now. I think a major thing that's going to <laughs> happen, I think someone's going to try to put out something completely written by AI and there it's going to be not good and it's going to blow up in their faces. And I think that might be what makes somebody realize, okay, yep, nope, we do need to, to do this because this is not happening this isn't working because i think a big reason why a lot of the studios are so thrilled with ai is because they are convinced that their consumers don't actually care that we will all just watch whatever formulaic awful just glop that they're willing to throw on our plates and that we'll all be satisfied with it and that's just not true and i think that uh i think they're in a a, a little uh, a little world of hurt when that awakening happens <laughs> i really hope that you're right bj because that sounds like you know, that sounds like something out of a movie, such such a clean cut example of, you know, this is a a sort of um, uh, an event that uh, people can rally around and like point to and look at and say, you know, you tried this thing, it didn't work. Now let's let's sort of uh, come to our senses here as a, as a collective group mm -hmm. or whatever. Um, I, I would love it if it was if it ends up being as like simple and clean cut as that. Um, I really, <laughs> I really hope that it ends up that way. And that, uh, that yeah, things things go in the writer's favor here. I think, um, mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure we'll be tracking this more uh, in the coming weeks and hopefully not too many more months um, before everybody sort of gets hopefully a, a better deal. I'm sure there's going to have to be some sort of compromise on this, but um, I hope that that people end up happy and that the the uh, situation gets like remedied in a way that that isn't too painful for uh, you know the the every like working day uh, work a day folks kind of thing. So. Mm -hmm. um, all right, let's move on to uh, Cloverfield, BJ. I think you noticed this last night and, and we wrote up an article that got published, um, I think it was earlier today, that uh, there's the potential for a new Cloverfield movie because the uh, Slusho website has come back to life. And I don't know, <laughs> what, were you tracking all of that when when this, uh, when the original Cloverfield was coming out, BJ? Do you, do you if, without any context, if I just said Slusho to you, would you know what that is? 
So I only know what this is because I'm a weirdo. And slusho is one of those like fake in-universe things that tends to pop up in a lot of J.J. Abrams projects. Um, think about like movie for Kevin Smith, if that tracks for people. But slusho is this like fake not real product where there are six different flavors. It's kind of like a Slurpee at 7-Eleven and, you know, you you just can't drink six. And the idea is that you can mix and match flavors of slusho. Uh, like the, the slusho pops up in um, like Veronica Mars. Uh, it, it, you can find it. You can track the little Easter egg through mm-hmm. JJ Abrams projects, but slusho and the website was a huge part of the viral marketing campaign for the first cloverfield movie which if people were not around for that when cloverfield was first being teased it was one of these really cool viral marketing sort of stunts where people were not sure what was going on is this a new monster movie is this a new horror movie is this real first in some instances and slusho was part of that and so the fact that this website is now active there were a couple people talking about it on social media and that's when i was like oh let's let's look at this let's see what's going on here and the sign of the slusho website being active again Sounds like they're gearing up for some some new Cloverfield because that's that's what it tends to to be a part of is is Cloverfield. Yeah, I think the the Rob character who's like one of the leads of the first Cloverfield, if I'm getting my mythology correct here, I think he was like leaving the country to go work for Slusho, maybe like a, mm-hmm. a um, sort of an international branch or something of the company, um, and that was you know there was like a big going away party for that character, and that was sort of like the. Uh, the impetus of that whole movie was that the film was like gathering a bunch of people together at this going away party. And then uh, the, the Cloverfield monster or alien or creature or whatever sort of burst through New York city and it all you know gets chaotic from there. But that was like the, the loose uh, sort of in movie connection. I think maybe the word slusho was like spoken one time, or maybe you even like see a logo or something in the background. But yeah, like you said, the, the website was really like a huge part of driving interest in those early days. And this was like, this was 2008. This is when the dark Knight was coming out. And there was like that whole, like um, vote for Harvey Dent campaign kind of thing that was going on in the same way that mm-hmm. that same like viral marketing was like at its peak. I think at this, at this point, it's kind of it, it's shifted and, and like um, dropped down in, in intensity in recent years. But like this was, you know, people were, were like full on fever pitch, you know, Reddit scanning, like before Reddit was even like a huge, huge thing like it is now. Um, this was like the equivalent of people just like doing Westworld deep dives and like that level mm-hmm. of uh, of stuff. So um, I guess the, the broad question for you, BJ, is like, what do you think about the the Cloverfield franchise as a whole? And, and are you interested in more movies in this franchise? Oh, I love the Cloverfield movies. Um, I was definitely somebody who got really sucked in by the viral marketing when it happened. I was in my like late teens, so this was kind of like right up my alley at the time. Um, I saw the first Cloverfield movie in the theaters, but I was stupid and I was in like front row center, so I'm looking up at this, you know, found footage POV film, and I got really seasick. Um, <laughs> so that was my bad. Um, but I really, really love Ten Cloverfield Lane. I think it is quite brilliant um, and how it is like a surprise Cloverfield movie. I think that's fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, I really, really like this franchise. I think it's really cool. I love having a go-to monster franchise that isn't Godzilla or King Kong. As much as I love, obviously, both of them, it is nice to have something that feels new um, and feels like something that isn't... I mean, like, obviously, Cloverfield's not new, but it doesn't have 
generations of mythos behind it the mm-hmm. way that the other two do. Um, so I'm excited to see to see more of it. And I'm hoping that the website becoming active again is a sign that we have more. I know there's been a lot of rumors of Cloverfield sequels for a while. There have been some stop starts of, oh, we're doing a sequel. Oh, just kidding. No, we're not anymore. So I'm hoping this is confirmation that like it's really, really happening because mm-hmm. I've been operating under I'll believe it when I see it for quite a bit. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, I know Slusho was, uh, you know, the 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 fake name that they shot Cloverfield under as well uh, when they were trying to keep it under wraps what they were doing. So that. I've, I'm convinced. I think that we're getting more Cloverfield, and I'm very excited. Yeah, the the Cloverfield paradox came out. That that was the one that dropped right after the Super Bowl in 2018, and that was kind of like mm-hmm. a, a disaster, um, mm-hmm. which really soured a lot of people on this franchise because I think that first movie uh, that first movie was great, and then Ten Cloverfield Lane I think was like an unexpected uh, success because of like like you said, it was sort of like shot under a different title and then uh, sort of like released as a surprise kind of thing. And that movie ended up being really, really, really great. And then the 2018 movie happened and everybody's like, oh, maybe this is maybe this is done. Um, mm-hmm. But there have been several stops and starts and they actually like, I think it was in 2021, um, announced that a new Cloverfield movie was in the works with uh, Babak Anvari directing it. He directed this movie called Wounds with um, Army Hammer a few years ago. Did you ever see that film? I didn't chance? see that one. I After Army Hammer was like, surprise, I'm a cannibal. I was like, I don't yeah. need to look back at your old catalog. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes sense. I actually, I saw Wounds at Sundance the year that it, it premiered. And that was before the, uh, the cannibal stuff. And uh, <laughs> I actually found that movie to be like pretty effective and, and well done. So um, I, I don't really think anybody has has seen it. But I'm curious to know what this director does next. And and like the idea of him making a, a Cloverfield movie is certainly intriguing to me. And uh, Joe Barton, who wrote The Ritual, is uh, evidently writing the screenplay. So we haven't heard any updates about like what the project is exactly or what sort of take they're going to have or anything like that. But um, last I heard that, you know, those deals were still in place and those people were still mm-hmm. working on this movie. And now that the Slusho uh, uh, website is, is like gearing back up again, it's sort of, indicates like you said that you know maybe we're going to see something sooner rather than later here so uh fingers crossed because i i think there's still a lot of potential in this franchise um as as disappointing as the cloverfield paradox was so mm-hmm. uh okay before we move on let's take a quick break and then we'll be right back all right a couple more stories that i wanted to mention today bj uh there's a cliffhanger reboot in the works Evidently, Sylvester Stallone is going to be coming back to reprise his role of Gabe Walker from Cliffhanger and Rick Roman Waugh, who has directed movies like Greenland and Angel Has Fallen, the uh, Gerard Butler films. And then he also directed uh, a pretty good movie called Snitch back in 2013 with Dwayne Johnson that was like one of the ones where he's actually giving a real performance instead of just doing his <laughs> Wayne Johnson thing. Um, he is going to be directing this movie. We don't know anything about who else might be coming back. Um, I would love to see. We were joking in the Slack about like uh, John Lithgow, who played the, vi- the villain in the original movie, coming back with like a giant scar on his face or something like that. That would be hilarious. <laughs> I would love that. I don't know if they're going to go that route. But uh, yeah, Cliffhanger. Do you have any relationship with the original Cliffhanger, BJ? So I love the original cliffhanger. I have such an affinity for what I like to call like 2 p.m. Sunday afternoon dad movies, which are just the movies that would be thrown on like TBS or TNT in the middle of the day on the weekend. Um, And cliffhanger is definitely one of those movies. So I watched it a lot on TV in that Mm -hmm. regard. 
Um, and I don't know if it's just me becoming less cynical because the world is so garbage right now that it feels silly to be upset about something as kind of inconsequential as a, a movie reboot. But I am all for like old action stars <laughs> rebooting their old franchises and just being old action guys. I love it. <laughs> like this sounds so dumb and great and I will absolutely be there. Well, like the the good example of this would be something like Top Gun Maverick, right? Um, right. And then the bad example, well, I don't know. I, I'm guessing there are actually probably a lot of examples of, you know, people coming back way beyond where they should and like trying to resurrect franchises that maybe didn't deserve to be resurrected. Uh, Cliffhanger, I think a lot of people might argue like, what is there to talk about here? It's like a guy who climbs mountains, but um, you know, the, there's a, the mountain ranges are big places, BJ, you know, more uh, planes could, could crash in there and drop money and, and uh, terrorists could come and, you know, there's a whole different <laughs> slew of situations that could arise from, uh, from something like this. I, I love the idea of like, you know, a, a grizzled Stallone being called back into action. Like you're the only guy who could climb this mountain, you know, like that right. kind of thing. Um, <laughs> even though he hasn't done it in years or something. So I, again, that's just speculation. I'm not sure what the actual plot of this movie is going to be, but uh, I'm with you. This sounds like it could be a lot of fun. And, and uh, Rick Romanois is like an effective director. He's certainly like not one of my favorite filmmakers, but um, like I said, I, I enjoyed snitch a lot. Um, I have not seen Greenland yet, but I remember Chris Evangelista talking on this podcast about how that movie was like surprisingly pretty good and, and much better than just like a typical Gerard Butler action movie uh, when that one came out in 2020. So uh, yeah, fingers crossed. He, he, I know he's directing a movie called Kandahar that is another Gerard Butler movie that comes out this year. Um, so Rick Romanois certainly like, you know, mixing it up in there and, and now <laughs> attaching himself to a, a, a big name project. We'll see uh, how this one uh, shakes out. But um, what I'm really hoping for is I'm hoping some executive saw that movie fall and was like, oh, my God, mm. this is amazing. We need to capture that. What IP do we own? Oh, cliffhanger. Let's put Sylvester Stallone really high on a mountain. Just leave him <laughs> there. Like I would give all the money to watch that. That'd be so funny. That would be great. Did you ever see Fall? I have not seen it yet. I did see Fall. Okay. Fall is a little like... <laughs> It's a, it's a little goofy, but it is a great time. And if you are afraid of heights, you will probably throw up because it's really scary. <laughs> okay. <laughs> maybe I should skip this one then. Like, I know there's it, a lot of CG in it. And like, so maybe that would save me a little bit. And maybe I would be able to like, you know, have the, the cognitive uh, cognitive dissonance of knowing that they didn't, they weren't actually really up there. But um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> there's a couple shots though, where you're just like, oof, oof, I don't like that. <laughs> yeah. Oh boy. Okay. Well, I, I think fall might be on Netflix or it was last time I checked. So, uh, people could check that out in the, in the meantime. Uh, and of course, like I always recommend going back and rewatching the original cliffhanger, which is just a, a super, yeah, kind of dumb, but really fun movie. So, uh, all right. The last thing I wanted to mention here is a, a quote from, um, Chad Stahelski, who's the director of the John Wick movies. And I thought this was kind of interesting and wanted to know what you thought about this, BJ. So we wrote an article on SlashFilm.com called John Wick's Long Fight Scenes Are Actually Intended to Make Fun of the Action Genre. And uh, the quote from Stahelski here, I'll read it now. He says, the whole gag of the movie is to have longer than long fight scenes. We're making fun of ourselves. We're making fun of the genre. We don't want to take them too seriously. We're trying to make this fun. The whole gag is excess. That's the whole moral of the story, the theme of this John Wick mythology. Um, so what do you think about the idea that, that the, uh, I guess, absurd lengths of these fight sequences in these John Wick movies are explicitly meant by the creators to be making fun of the action genre? Is that something that you buy as a, as a, uh, as a concept? 
I do buy it. And like this quote isn't really shocking to me at all because when I read it, I was like, I thought that was the point. Like, I thought that was exactly what was happening here. Uh, I just feel confirmed by this because I think what happens is a lot of people hear the phrase like making fun and they assume that that is being done with negativity or like making fun of something. Your brain is like, oh, it's like scary movie where it like clearly hates the source material that Mm. it's parodying. And I don't think that's the case here. I think that this is it's making fun of it, but it's being done in good fun. It's being done with the reverence. Like I love Shaw Brothers movies and some of those fight scenes are ridiculous and it's okay to acknowledge that they are ridiculous. That's part of the fun. So the fact that John Wick is being made knowing in mind, yeah, these are kind of ridiculous. This is not how fighting works in real life, but that's the fun of it. I think that's more so what he's trying to say. Like he's making fun of it, but it's not being done with malice. It's being done in jest. It's being done with positive feelings behind it. Yeah, I I agree that like the the general tone of these movies seems to be one that like um you know certainly knows the history of of the action genre all across the world really and sort of has incorporated a lot of elements of that into its own unique mythology. Um, I just think it's it's a little strange like the idea of him saying the whole gag is excess. Like yes, from a style perspective, I get that, but like I the the one thing that I sort of bumped on in John Wick chapter four was I thought a lot of the the action scenes did go on for too long. And because, you know, they do inventive things in these movies, but there are only, let's say 10 to 15 moments of great inventiveness in, uh, in a John Wick film. And then every other fight scene is just stuff you've seen before um, done in an effective and stylish way. But like the idea of, of him you know, sitting in the editing room and being like, let's make this longer because it's funny. I, I don't know if that really, <laughs> I don't know if that really resonates with me. Um, so I don't know. Do, do you have any response to that at all? I mean, I get why it won't resonate with everybody, but it does resonate with me because I live for this kind of crap. <laughs> like, <laughs> okay. and like, I don't mean crap, like in a bad way by any stretch of the imagination, but like, I live for that sort of energy. Like I, like I love the raid movies so much. And there are so many people they are like, it's just a whole fight scene for a movie. And I'm like, yeah. And it's awesome. <laughs> like yeah. that's, that's great. Like that's what I'm coming to these movies for. And if the creative team behind it is willing to be honest and say, yeah, this is what we're doing. I'm all for it like you know don't (laughs) just just be just be into it lean into the gimmick i mean again i'm also one of our websites like go to wrestling writers like i love when people live their gimmick and the john wick movies live the gimmick that's true uh joe writer uh joe roberts wrote this article for slash film and and i encourage you to read that and uh he he ends with um the line of basically like it feels more like Stahelski and company are at times having fun with the genre rather than making fun of it. Totally. Um, and I, I, that does resonate with me and I appreciate that distinction. Um, I just think, yeah, maybe, I don't know, maybe Stahelski, maybe it's just like a, uh, a semantics kind of thing. Um, totally. His, his words are, uh, are causing me to trip up a little bit, but, um, but yeah, so anyway, I, I thought that was a, a fascinating sort of, uh, sub conversation to have as we wrap up this episode. So, um, BJ, where can people find more of your stuff online? Sure. I'm on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at BJ Colangelo and writing over at SlashFilm. Excellent. You can find my writing at SlashFilm.com. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Ben Pears. And you can find more about all the stories that we mentioned on today's show at SlashFilm.com uh, and linked inside the show notes for this episode. SlashFilm Daily is published every weekday, bringing the most exciting news from the world of movies and TV, as well as deeper dives into the great features you can find on the site. 
you can subscribe to the show on Apple, Google, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Please subscribe to our newsletter, send your feedback, questions, comments, concerns, and mailbag topics to us at peter at slashfilm.com. Make sure to leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention your email on the air. Don't forget to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. Tell your friends, spread the word. Thanks for listening, and we will talk to you tomorrow. Mike Rowe here with a few thoughts on my favorite sweatshirt, a classic zip-up hoodie that used to be navy blue but has since faded to what the fashionistas call a distressed indigo. It's 13 years old, soft as a flannel bathrobe, and after a few hundred dirty jobs, demonstrably and undeniably indestructible. This is the kind of sweatshirt girlfriends like to permanently borrow, but I've held on to this one because I got it from American Giant. American Giant makes all their stuff right here in the USA so they can control every link in their own supply chain. That matters because when you buy American Giant, you not only get great quality, you create jobs for people in factory towns all over the country. No pressure, but if you give a damn about the business of making things in America, you got to support the companies who are doing it right. Go to American-Giant.com slash Mike to get 20% off your first order. That's American-Giant.com slash Mike.